welcome to stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. This is Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon from wherever you are and wherever you're listening. I am so glad to have you back with me today. Okay, so what is on the docket for today? Oh yes, that's right. This is the final episode of the Dr. Shipman story, case, however you want to see it. Like I said and promised before, it's about to get juicy and I'm excited to tell you about the fall of this creep. Where we last left off, I was telling you about how the police had really started to gather a lot of evidence against him. They had checked out his home and his surgery on the same day, and they brought him down for questioning. He was kept in prison or jail as opposed to what he thought would happen. So this really shook him up quite a bit. He could not believe it. And in the meantime, they had been gathering a whole other amount of information to take this guy down. So, I love this next part. This is when his whole house of cards crumbles. All right, no more description. Let's get into it. One of the biggest pieces of evidence that they were gathering against Shipman was his fraudulent entering of patient records into his computer. So what he had been doing was after he had killed a patient, he would go back in to their electronic chart and he would change things to match his cause of death and to make it look like that's what had been going on all along. And he thought that he had himself covered. He really believed that he was a computer genius, but the fact is that he knew diddly squat about how computers worked. This is what the police had in store for him. On October 7th, 1998, Dr. Shipman was back in the interview room at Ashton under the Lynn police station. But this time he came from direct prison custody as opposed to his comfy surgery. Bernard Postles, detective inspector, describes their strategy. Quote, what we want to do first is get Harold Shipman, that he was the one who had actually completed the medical records in relation to Winifred Miller, before putting it to him that in actual fact, there had been alterations. Winifred Miller, just so you know, is or was one of his victims. And it is where they started, where they noticed that in her fraudulent reporting records, that everything started to come together. Bernard Postles decided to come up with a new strategy for interviewing. 
he brought in Detective Sergeant Mark Waring and Detective Constable Marie Sedinsky. The new pairing had been brought in partly to relieve the pressure of the first team, but to see how Shipman would react to a woman. Shipman wasn't impressed. Answering to a detective constable was bad enough, but he considered it even more demeaning to answer to a woman. Initially, he presented with a quite unbelievable arrogance. Psychologist Julie Boom says, quote, Clearly in his eyes, these weren't professional policemen doing interviews. They were just contemptible plods who were nowhere near the quality of a medical practitioner. End of quote. So the trap was being set. These lowly detectives had a big surprise for him. Enter Detective Specialist John Ashley. His expertise is in IT and computer fraud. Detective Ashley's work with the computer had shown the medical records had been altered, but because the evidence was on a server accessed by a number of users, they had to prove it was Shipman who had made the entry and no one else. The way the computer network worked was that every user had a personal login and, to, and their own personal password. However, the system was so lax that everybody used HSF, Harold Shipman's initials. So they couldn't just go on the password. They did know that Harold Shipman was the only person who was consistently at the surgery on each occasion. They needed to get Shipman to confirm that he was the one who had actually completed the medical records in relation to Winifred Millar. Shipman claimed that he made an entry into the computer on May 11th when she called to see him at the surgery. And here is an excerpt from the interview. And please forgive me, I'm going to try to do my best voices here. I'm not mocking, just work with me. Detective Sergeant Waring. Where is the record of that visit? Shipman. The record is on the front of the records there, 11598. DS Waring. So, in the case, as well as making a written record on the front of your manila folder, you also made a computer entry. Shipman. I corrected the date for her death. The date that I made the entry was the 12th. D.S. Waring. So you corrected that to the 11th? Shipman. Yes, to say she died on the 11th, but the machine records the entry as on the 12th. D.S. Waring. So these would have been done the day after? Shipman. Yes, I would have gone back to the surgery just to enter it up on the computer. Detective Sergeant Waring put the question to him again in another way by asking if there were occasions when members of Shipman's staff actually did the computer entries on his behalf after he made a written record. Shipman's answer, no, I do it. D.S. Waring asked again the same question in another way. They wanted to bury him. This time Shipman responded very aggressively saying, can you not understand what I'm saying? I do it. I love this so much. I, I really do. <laughs> Shipman was emphatically admitting that he had altered the records. He was forcefully saying, I did it. He was probably thinking that these stupid doofuses are so dumb that they have to ask me this question over and over. Meanwhile, he was digging himself even deeper. This is what the police wanted. It became very, very difficult for him to deny or suggest that there was any misunderstanding 
when it was put to him that whoever made those entries at the time was actually making fraudulent entries, which were backdated. The trap had sprung. Here is the next part of the interview. Dias Waring. I'm now showing you exhibit JFA42 and its insertion behind your computer, a ghost image, and it records what's placed in and what's removed. This record of information was created on the 11th of the 5th, 98, 3 minutes, 39 seconds after 3 o'clock by HFS, Dr. H.F. Shipman. Term. Chest pain appears okay. Angina. First date, 97. And it's created on the 11th, 5th, 98. Where has the information come from, Dr. Shipman? I have no recollection of putting that on the machine. DS Waring. It's your passcode. It's your machine. Shipman. It doesn't alter the fact that I can't remember doing it. DS Waring. You choose not to remember. Shipman. It's a rhetorical question. DS Waring. It's quite correct, though, isn't it? Shipman. I still have no record of entering that on the computer. DS Waring. You attended the house at three o'clock, and that's when you murdered this lady. And so much was your rush to get back to the surgery and immediately start altering this lady's medical records. We can prove only minutes after 3 p.m. on that date you were fabricating that false medical history for this woman. Tell me why you needed to do that. Shipman. He didn't answer. D.S. Waring. This is a very clear answer because you'd been to her house, rolled up her sleeve, administered morphine, and killed her, and you were covering up what you were doing. That's what happened, isn't it, Dr. Shipman? No. Psychologist Paul Britton states, quote, By the time he is confronted with the computer evidence, he begins to realize that the world is shifting from his point of view. He has been outmaneuvered, into a provable lie. Psychologist Julie Boone adds, quote, that Shipman just could not face the extreme stress of having the tables turned on him by people he would consider to be far inferior to him intellectually, socially, and professionally. End of quote. The tapes reveal that Shipman's voice had lost its arrogance and for the first time, he now sounds almost confused. When he begins to realize that the police officers, who he despises, have cornered him, he tries to back out and deflect by changing the subject. Even though he couldn't remember entering the info, yeah, whatever, into the computer, he began to accuse the officers of being wrong about the time because the computer had shifted an hour due to daylight savings time. Give me a break. We're talking days here not ours, but this is how stupid this man is. At this point on the tape, you can hear Shipman's lawyer, Ann Ball, asking to stop the interview so that she and her client could consult. And the interview was ended. This is the best. You guys are going to love this. This is the best. I wish that I could have been there to watch Point and Giggle. Here we go. At that point... Shipman was removed from that interview room and taken to another. 
and he collapsed psychologically and he went from being an incredibly confident, bullying, arrogant and condescending jerk to someone who was literally, literally blubbering and pathetic. According to a police witness, Shipman broke down. Detective Inspector Bernard Postles reported, quote, Shipman was in tears and that he was crawling on the floor. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Call me vindictive and call me ugly for saying that. But you know what? I don't care. I don't care. He completely dissociated. Shipman is a man who believed that he was a great savior, a man who brings and dispenses health and community benefit. <laughs> Julie Boone states, quote, when he was confronted with reality, as opposed to his version of reality, he simply couldn't cope. Very quickly, there is only one exit here, and that is to quickly dissociate and go right down on your upper psychologically, which is what he did. End of quote. Good. I need to regain my composure here. See if I can bring back a little bit of self-respect. Forgive me. As Shipman was feeling sorry for himself in prison, the detectives continued to gather evidence. Do you remember me talking about John Shaw, the ex-cop turned taxi driver? Of course you did. I think I brought him up many times. <laughs> anyway, he drove many of the elderly around Hyde to shopping and appointments, like I had said. And he had befriended many of them. He considered these ladies friends. And he realized that it was time to bring forth his concerns to the police. And this is what he said, quote, all of my customers I classed as friends. We were in the main on first name terms and they knew that they could depend on me. I tried to treat them as I would my own mother. I seemed to be seeing a pattern that caused me a lot of concern. They all died in similar circumstances. They were fully clothed, sitting in a chair. I didn't hear one of these ladies going into the hospital and dying. They all appeared to be dying at home and in the course of conversation with others, it always seemed to be Dr. Shipman who was their doctor. End of quote. Detective Stan Edgerton agreed with John Shaw that if before all this he had brought this list to him, he himself would have thought, you're crazy, you're, this is not happening, this is all in your head. But when all the things were coming together, John Shaw waited until the perfect time to bring it. Really, I don't think anybody would have believed him before. And this was just more fuel for the fire. Shipman not only killed his patients in their homes, but he also killed them in his office, right under the noses of the people working and visiting him for an appointment. Let me tell you about one of these patients that had been murdered in his surgery. Her name was Joan Harding. John Shaw described her as a very bubbly, outgoing spinster lady. No way was she ready to die. She was a bit of an eccentric. A lot of these traits, though endearing to us, would have gotten on Shipman's nerves. And that might have been enough to, for him to kill her. On January 3rd, 1994, John Shaw got a call from Joan Harding to be transported to Dr. Shipman's office for a 10 o'clock appointment. Unfortunately, John was unable to take her as he had a prior booking. He told her that he would be able to drive her home. And so Joan was able to have her friend Marion Bolton take her to the appointment. The reason why Joan Harding didn't call John Shaw later for a ride is because the 82-year-old woman died in the consulting room of Shipman's office. 
Shipman's report was that her blood pressure was low and that she had had a heart attack. Joan's medical records were found in a Kleenex box. Yeah, a Kleenex box in Shipman's home. And they show no history of heart problems until that day. Her medical records and history also corroborated by her friends, showed that she had suffered from depression, anxiety, and she had a great fear of getting cancer. She was afraid of dying. Joan had been having some problems with an elbow that she had broken years before. And while we'll never really know the reason why she went to visit Shipman, but it wasn't because she was having a heart attack. Joan's friend Marion dropped her off and went to run a few errands herself and then waited for Joan in the parking lot. Joan was called in to an exam room, very much alive, and unfortunately lost her life. After 20 minutes, Shipman asked his practice nurse to go into the office. She saw Joan Harding laid out on the examination bed, fully dressed and deceased. Of course, you know that Shipman had waited that time, so she couldn't have been brought back. The nurse attempted CPR, but to no avail. Shipman then proceeded to tell his receptionist in a very cold manner that Mrs. Harding was dead. Joan was not the only patient to die. As the police continued with their investigations, they discovered that Shipman had killed six of his patients in his office. It is incredibly rare that patients die in a doctor's office. It can happen, but it is very unusual. Dr. Wally Ashworth. Shipman's very own family GP agrees that in over 30 years of his practice, it only happened once. Killing patients in his surgery was a progression of his MO. He was probably not getting the same pleasure from killing patients in their homes. And it was probably due to the lethal combination of thrill and convenience. Shipman had established an MO that involved killing people in their homes, but the level of sensation sometimes needs a boost, which means pushing the limits. Here's a quote from Paul Britton that I think best describes this. Quote, If you start killing people in your surgery, you are able to have what, from his point of view, would be an almost exquisite sensation of doing it literally under people's noses and still being able to carry it through and carry it off. He also seemed occasionally to have an irresistible urge to kill spontaneously, and I think that is the height of his risk-taking. End of quote. While John Shaw was compiling his list, funeral director Alan Massey was struggling with the same suspicions. Alan owned a 100-plus-year-old funeral business that was started by his grandfather, and it was still a family business as his daughter and her husband also worked and ran the business. It was David who was the first to get suspicious because he did most of the removals from people's homes. He talked to his wife, Debbie, about all the deaths and how most of them were Dr. Shipman's patients. Here is a quote from David. If people are ill and they die at home, you'll find there could be oxygen bottles, medicines, incontinence pads, or anything all around the room. You know that the person's been ill, and it's common sense that they probably died of natural causes. Now, anybody can die in the street. They can die talking. But so many? In chairs? Ladies just sitting there in day clothes? Probably a cup of tea, a book, a paper, shopping left unpacked? It's not unusual for one or two a year, but we're getting one or two a month. Debbie agreed. She decided to talk to another GP about her suspicions. She went to Dr. Susan Booth. 
Dr. Booth worked for the Brooke surgery, which was across the street from his surgery. In order to be able to do a cremation, another doctor had to, or has to, co-sign the certificate. The Brooke surgery, like I said, was right across the street from Shipman, which made it really convenient. They co-signed each other's documents. And this is how it works. You obviously have to be very sure of cremation because forensic evidence of foul play is automatically destroyed during the cremation process. Um, and a system of checks and balances had been developed. Before the body can be cremated, a form has to be filled by two doctors. The first is the attendant physician who gives the circumstances and cause of death. The second doctor confirms and co-signs the second part of the form. It is the undertaker who is responsible for getting the forms filled out. In this case, the undertaker was Alan Massey. Another important part of this form is that it asks if there are any suspicious circumstances surrounding the death and who was the person with them when they died. The second doctor is usually there to say that he agrees with the first doctor that the cause of death is correct. But this is usually done on the honor system, meaning that the second doctor should do at least a full external exam of the patient, but because of the doctor's club. There is usually only a phone call between the two doctors and the form is sent over and signed. Dr. Shipman counted on the trust of the doctor's club to literally get away with murder. Back to Dr. Susan Booth. She had become very suspicious with all the cremation certificates. It was on a visit to drop off forms to the Masseys that she and Debbie discussed this. Debbie said to Susan, you're here a lot. And Susan said, yes, another one of Fred's. Debbie proceeded to tell Dr. Booth about her concerns, and she described David's finding of the deceased in their unusual conditions when he went to pick them up. And Dr. Booth was sufficiently concerned about that that she decided to go talk to her practice partners. One of these partners is Dr. Reynolds, and she voiced her concern as well. Dr. Reynolds had recently joined the practice after leaving another practice that she had been at for over 20 years. So she was a really experienced GP. She had never seen anything like this before. All the deaths and all the cremation forms. Dr. Shipman was able to avoid suspicion for a while because he had such a large list of elderly patients. But when they did the statistics of a practice of five doctors, their practice, compared to a practice of one, he had three times more cremations. Dr. Reynolds was quite sure that there was something sinister going on. They brought their concerns to the coroner and the medical defense union for legal advice. The coroner, John Pollards, agreed to take the concerns to the police. The medical defense union, however, warned Dr. Reynolds of the consequences if she was wrong. Unbelievably, she could lose her license over this, over trying to protect the public. She did put her license on the line and she went to the police. The police were ordered to investigate, but under no circumstances were they to do anything that would make Shipman or any of his patients aware that he was under suspicion. The case was supposed to be initially assigned to Detective Inspector Bernard Postles, but he was away at the time. You've heard me talking about how it was Bernard Postles and um, Stan Edgerton that were running this case, investigating this case, but at one point it was assigned 
to another inspector. And it's scary because he almost dropped the ball on all of this. I'm not going to get into the details about this too much, but let's just say he really did a crappy job. In fact, he did such a crappy job that it allowed more than four more people to get killed. So meanwhile, Alan Massey decided to confront Shipman. Shipman's reaction was typical of a psychopathic personality. Alan Massey said that, quote, he was nonchalant. He just stood up and said, there's nothing to worry about. There's all my records, death certificates, and you can have a look at them. He was quite open and jovial about it. No shock. You would have expected somebody to jump up at me and ask what I was implying. I felt a great deal of relief, and we had quite a pleasant chat for about two to three minutes. I came home and told him that there was nothing to worry about, that everything was in order. End of quote. As you can hear, Shipman would be able to feign objectivity and withdraw emotionally. When his guard was down, some of the grandiose elements of his psychopathy would come to the forefront. Now back to D.I. Smith. It was determined that he was too incompetent to manage the case. And this is when Bernard Postles comes back and he takes the case over. Thank goodness for that. So now the case was in Bernard Postles and Stan Edgerton's capable hands. Shipman was arrested on September 7, 1998. His trial commenced on October 5, 1999, and it was presided over by Mr. Justice Thane Forbes. Shipman was charged with 15 murders, although it is suspected that he killed over 250 people, maybe more. Shipman's lawyer, Nicola Davis, tried to manipulate the case by trying to get the case postponed because Shipman would not get a fair trial. Boo-hoo because of the inaccurate and misleading coverage from the media. <laughs> she then wanted the court to hold three separate trials. The first to be Kathleen Grundy's because the motive was greed only. Only. <laughs> the second should only involve patients who were buried and exhumed because there was physical evidence of morphine poisoning. The third should cover those cremated due to lack of evidence. Justice Forbes denied all three. Ha! Awesome. Awesome. During the trial, relatives of Shipman's victims testified and a clear pattern of Shipman's behavior was uncovered. Angela Woodruff, the daughter of Kathleen Grundy, who fought tirelessly for her mother's justice, was an exceptional witness, as would be expected. They had a whole panel of professionals that testified against him like Detective Sergeant John Ashley, uh, a calligraphy expert, a pathologist, and more. Former colleagues testified as well, like District Nurse Marion Gilchrist and former partner Dr. Grenville. When the case was ready to go to jury, it took Justice Forbes two weeks to separate all of the evidence. And when he presented all the evidence to the jury, he reminded the jurors that there were actually no witnesses who saw Shipman killing one and utilize common sense and not react to the anger, disapproval, disgust, or sympathy that they felt during the trial. He just wanted to make sure that this stuck. On January 31st, 2000, at 4.43 p.m., following six days of deliberation, the jury found Shipman guilty of killing 15 patients via lethal injection of diamorphine and one count of forgery. He was sentenced to 15 life sentences and four years for the forgery. 
Shipman never displayed any emotion when the verdict was read. He was stripped of his medical license February 11th, 2000. Shipman took the coward's way out. He committed suicide at 6.20 p.m. on January 13th, 2004. Shipman hung himself with the bedsheets from the window bars of his cell. And I'm not saying in any way that people who commit suicide are cowards. Not at all. But in this case, Shipman was. He exercised the ultimate control and denied due justice to all the victims. On the 30th July 2005, in Hyde Park, the Garden of Tranquility was opened as a memorial garden to Shipman's victims. The end. Wow. What a case. Just, just horrible, 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 horrible. So many things allowed him to fall through the cracks. There were, you know, I look at this whole case and I think at any given time, he, he could have been caught. But because of the trust of people for the good doctor, because he was such a good manipulator, because of the honor system within the medical community, because, 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 you know, he was able to go on and kill so many people. And it's, it's awful. At the end of the day, I love the way that um, the police were able to trap him and bust him and how everybody came together to, you know, to take him down. And it's frightening to think that with all of the evidence and all of the things that people were concerned about, that their licenses very well might have been put on the line to, to try and stop him from killing people. So yeah, it's uh, a pretty scary thing. And I think that's what makes doctors, nurses, uh, people in the medical profession so dangerous because their knowledge allows them to know how to kill quietly, without suspicion, at least for a while. And they know how to work the system. They know the inner workings of the hospitals and the medical profession. So yeah, that's why I think uh, medical professionals are some of the most scary and deadly serial killers killers out there. And on this note, I am going to end this chapter, this episode. But I want to tell you about what's coming up. I have been very interested in this case for so long. It is about Dr. Linda Hazard and her starvation diet her sanitarium that was up in Washington. It's fascinated me because it involves horrible medical treatments, medical experimentation, greed, psychopathy, and murder. Of course, this is an awful, awful thing. But after it happens, I like to dig into the minds of the victims. How did this happen to them? How did they get horribly treated and murdered. And I like to really dig into the minds of the psychopaths that do it. So that is going to be coming up, uh, I'd say in the next couple weeks to a month. It's going to be great. And of course, there'll be a new hardcore ER coming up very shortly. So thank you for joining me today to listen to this final episode on Dr. Shipman. And of course, Let's remember to be kind to each other, to help each other, to just 
love. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets nothing realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.